Lily here, and I am thrilled to be able to share with you today a very special episode and a very special conversation with my delightful colleague and co-host, Millie Rooney, as well as one of Australia's most renowned playwrights and creators, S. Shakti Dharan. Shakti is the co-founder and co-director of a production company that he runs with his wife. The company is called Karinji, and he's a Western Sydney storyteller with Sri Lankan heritage and, and Tamil ancestry. And we talk in this conversation about his debut play, which just so you know, cleaned up at the Helpmans, which is the equivalent of our Tonys. This play is called Counting and Cracking, and it is um, a, a deep dive into the lead up to the civil war in Sri Lanka and the people who tried to stop it and really the politics of division and kind of the universal lessons that we can draw from that. And we talk about that. We talk about the power of story as a unique technology and container to help us go into places that we might not otherwise. We talk about how to make art that has a moral without sort of being moralizing or polarizing or overly didactic and boring. It's just a beautiful, soulful conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Here's Shakti. sitting with the wonderful Millie Rooney, my co-host, and Shakti, thank you so much for being here. It is such a delight to have you on the podcast today to talk about the power and glory of the arts and some of your story in making art that that moves us. Um, Now, you and I kind of met many years ago, actually, at a then little startup called GetUp. And we were campaigners and we were working on, you know, important things, um, Attention of asylum seekers, especially children, protecting sacred rock art that was 50,000 years old on the Burt Peninsula. And I remember you as this, like, you're both young and determined, and you had this really beautiful kind of compassionate, gentle, sort of quietly competent energy that you brought to the office. And I really loved that you obviously cared deeply, but you never seemed to kind of approach activism or campaigning from any kind of moral high ground or savior, or I'm going to step in and save the day and right the wrong. Like you really, even then it was really evident that you had this real humility and this real um, desire to sort of serve. And, you know, you got in to listen alongside people and learn from them. And that, that seems to me to be the same approach that you have taken to telling stories as an artist. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your story as just a kind of introduction to to you and to the forces that kind of have shaped that philosophy and and your approach to storytelling, um, because I think it's quite unique and quite special. That's very kind of you. Thanks, Lily. It's always strange to hear people talk about you when you were younger, because it feels like a uh, a different version of me. And, you know, you have all the thoughts you have about yourself when you were younger. And um, uh, uh, I'm, I can only think about how much I've changed. But it's good to know that younger Shakti um, had, some, had some nice things going for him. <laughs> uh, it was such an interesting time for me because I, um, uh, I don't know if the three of you, if, if we all feel too crusty to remember these days, but um, I... Uh, uh, we were we were in our twenties, I think, and we and I was um, that that was my introduction to actual proper politics and activism. Yeah, up until then, it had been theory or um, singing along to political rock songs or something. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was such a um, eye opening time for me because I was just so curious about how the machines of democracy work and and yeah to look at the reality of what kind of change really is possible and how it happens and um those beginning experiences are so pivotal to how we then decide where our skepticism or optimism optimism lays <laughs> for decades after that and it was a real privilege to be able to spend it with you and 
everyone else there at GetUp because um, it was an optimistic place. And, um, yeah, I really feel lucky that that was my introduction to how the wheels of that often very murky world work. <laughs> um, I think for me, um, I've, when I was at uni, I, um, uh, I've always known, I think that I've loved stories and, um, I grew up inside, um, a dance company. My mother's a Bharatanatyam dancer, which is a form of traditional Indian dance. It's from the South of India, um, where there's a lot of Tamil people and we're Sri Lankan Tamil and we have a strong connection to other Indian Tamil art forms. And so I always knew that the stage was a sacred space. Um, and I mean that kind of literally, not in any kind of <clears throat> romanticized way. It's just like this, it was very fascinating to me that there was this place in society where everyone would come to it with respect and openness and to learn and to collaborate. And um, it was just a piece of floor, but it had this power to change the way that people stood on it or entered it. And then um, there was absolute freedom to do whatever you wanted on it. Like those moments before the lights go down in a show, literally anything could happen next. Um, and that suited my anti-authoritarian brain really well. <laughs> um, so that was what really drew me to storytelling, those possibilities. I've only really unpacked that now. I think when, you, when you're younger, you fall in love with the end part of processes. You know, you, you know that you love that song or that film or whatever, that book. But um, actually, I've been able to learn more about what's underneath all of that. And I think it's the freedom and the respect and the combination of that that comes with um, when people come together for the arts that I haven't found anywhere else in the world. Um, it's probably what the kind of space people want when they enter a UN meeting, but <laughs> there's other agendas at play. <laughs> Wouldn't um, it be wonderful if that was the vibe when you entered yeah, a UN meeting? Nice. <laughs> yeah. That would be nice. Um, uh, and then I guess the world inserted itself into that as I got older because when I was at uni, uh, there were kind of two more real politic things that had to I had to contend with. One was being a Sri Lankan Tamil, like um, my community <laughs> uh, prefers if you become a doctor or a lawyer and or an engineer. And um, <clears throat> so um, I never really had time or space to profess um, the kinds of things I was interested in doing for my career. And even though my mother was a dancer, she kind of, was even more forceful and not wanting me to pursue that because she knew how hard that was financially as a life. Um, and so I studied journalism and um, did that for a couple of years. But I guess once I felt like I'd done my duty to my family by studying a degree that I wasn't necessarily willing, wanting to pursue, um, uh, I just did my own thing. And so I, but I couldn't, the, the, the kind of version of Australia that I was living in, which was mostly in, um, growing up in Sydney's Western suburbs and, um, having a dance company be, um, the home I was growing up in that was founded in ancient South Asian principles, um, and living that life versus like, um, a very assimilated version of myself in public, like talking about cricket with my mates and, um, and, you know, knowing more about the, the rise of Hitler than I did about why war was in Sri Lanka. Um, I just couldn't find any space in the arts industry that was telling those kinds of stories between those two worlds. And, you know, it was the late nineties, early nineties back then. And thankfully Australia has done a little bit of movement in this space since then, but back <laughs> then there was so little. And so I just, I was young and naive. So I found in my own company, and I thought it would tell Australia's untold stories. And, and, you know, it was called Curious Works. It's still going strong. I'm not there anymore, uh, but it's still going strong. But I very quickly found that um, it's not um, – I thought if people just had an opportunity to tell a, a broader range of stories, that was all they needed and we'd be off and running. But I very quickly found that 
the industry was systemically opposed to telling a broader range of stories and that um, uh, there's very strong reasons why we want to only tell a small range of stories and to keep the power that's within the stories we tell locked into a very small range of places um, and to have control over what gets told and where and how. Um, and that led me to, to really changing what Curious Works is about. And, and it became a community arts organization, which for people who don't know what that is, is um, uh, the idea that every community has cultural capital. And that is um, the economic, um, political, and social power associated with the stories that have the capacity to tell. And with almost all communities that are in the minority or lack power, that cultural capital is taken from them and other people dictate how the stories about them are told and use the power that comes from that for their own means rather for the, for the community's benefit. And community arts is a, an, a system by which communities can take back that power and utilize their cultural capital for their own purposes as, as they collectively deem fit. And so Curious Works, along with many other companies, and Australia is one of the best countries in the world at this, um, built a system for communities owning their own cultural capital and it involved kind of working with the community over the course of seven to nine years and, um, and identifying and growing cultural leaders to, to play that role in their own community for the long term. Um, and I think the humility and the listening and the gentleness that you talked about um, may or may not be core qualities to me. I don't know. That's for someone else to say. You can probably ask my wife. Um, but <laughs> but I definitely learned that there. And the process of working with communities is a process of deep listening, um, a process of not thinking you know um, the predetermined answer to something before you go into there, and then figuring out how to respond to that listening with um, an artistic product that is what that community needs and making sure that they are front and center of developing that artistic product. Um, and it's part of how that community wants to grow and change. Um, and that's where I learned the power of those things again, in a non-romanticized way, like I found that listening very deeply, um, meant that you were able to get to the core of why something is and respond to root causes. And that quite often the things we assume about a community and the things we assume about what stories are right are wrong. Um, and uh, you need to have that process to properly understand something. Um, and that um, is, was really the foundation of my artistic practice. And then the end part of that story is that I just, um, because I think I, you know, never really turned that lens on myself. <laughs> um, and I spent a long time helping other communities tell their stories. And then I hit my late twenties and as a migrant, I think like most migrants go through this, I really felt like I couldn't go forward without properly knowing my family's past and my country's past, my homeland's past, and um, uh, and I had to contend with that. And I have the amazing privilege of being an artist. And so <laughs> in order to answer that question, um, my parents had never really talked about Sri Lanka growing up. Um, I, I approached that as an artist and used what was actually a life problem. Um, uh, I used an artistic project to answer my life problems. <laughs> And that was what became Counting and Cracking, um, which was a a play that was that premiered in 2019 at Sydney Festival and went to Adelaide Festival and recently came back from Edinburgh and Birmingham in the UK. Um, and that's been a shift for me to become a predominantly a, a writer um, and director now of my own work, and um, but still using those community storytelling principles. That's a brilliant answer, my friend. And can I just say that you covered about seven questions I had in that answer? So well done. No, Told no. You I rambled. It's great. And I, I think Millie's um I can see by her face that she's keen to to kind of jump in and 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 have uh, there's probably fifty thousand follow-up questions from that answer. But Millie, what did you want to say? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing listening to you tell that story, Shakti. And I'm struck by a few different things. And like Lily said, there's like multiple paths I'd love to go down. Um, that 
that moment when you talked about the stage as a sacred space um, and, you know, it's just a piece of floor, but there is a coming together and a certain shared experience around that. And you were saying, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great if the UN was actually like that? And I um, was reading about your about counting and cracking, which I wish I had seen because it sounded just an extraordinary um, piece. And I think the director was saying, you know, the whole thing's an act of translation. So there, are, I think, four different languages spoken. Uh, six uh, languages in the show. Six different languages, yeah. yeah, in the show. And so the the experience of the audience relied on the different cast members translating across languages, um, which just really struck me as an interest. You know, again, going back to the UN and that sacred space, that sense of of how you've woven belonging into your artistic process and that listening. Um, and one of the things that we heard in some of the work we've done is people saying, you know, I want to belong without having to fit in. Um, and it seems there's a real link there. So I'm interested in how you, you see this work as a really central piece really of the or an Australian story and what that means for kind of Australian identity and the narrative or narratives that we tell ourselves. Wow. That's a very deep question. Um, <laughs> um, I love that sentence. I want to belong with that thing, having to fit in. Um, and I think it strikes at the core of a lot of Western democracies that have built themselves on a culture of, um, on a history of migration because, um, and I feel like it's kind of where the crossroads of those Western democracies are now in terms of cultural issues, because we can, we can have a future where um, we seem to have embraced difference and actually we have the same kind of cultural norms with a lot of different skin colors. <laughs> um, and, but, but beneath that is actually very much the same um, the same thing, um, or we can, um, try a different tack and, um, um, you know, I've, I've, I've often said that Australia can be a country which <clears throat> asks people to discard parts of themselves to fit in or can, um, ask them who they really are in order to grow what our country can be. And, um, I think County and Cracking was ultimately a radical act of belonging for the local Sri Lankan community in Sydney, um, but it took us by surprise. Um, the my country is my homeland is one that um, the kind of most loud narrative about it in the history books and in the media is a divided community because we had a long civil war and <clears throat> I could have done a play about that. That was still, um, dramatic and hopeful and, um, entertaining. Um, and I'm really lucky that I had my experience as a community artist because the first thing I did was just talk to dozens of Sri Lankans here and around the world. and. I learnt a different story of my community. Um, I learnt about a Sri Lanka that was very united and had lots of mixing between cultures and families and love and um, businesses and cities and villages. And, um, and I felt like what I learnt was that what really divided us um, and what really um, set in the, the wheels in motion for the eventual violence that came was a politics of division and the use of the politics of division to accrue political power um, um, quite easily and quickly. Um, and the issue with doing that is when a politician does that, they very rarely actually believe in what they're saying. They're accruing power because this is in ways to do so. Um, and then they often try to dial back um, the division they've put out there once they've 
won an election or got the policy through they want to, but they can't. <laughs> um, they can't because the level they've allowed people to think at and speak at and the stories they've put out there have now accrued their own power. Um, and I felt that that needed to be talked about more and I felt that that was a cautionary tale for the rest of the world. We, we know that that has been a great feature of American politics um, for, the, for the past little while with, with pretty devastating results and, and, and it's, a, it's a part and parcel of Australia's politics and many other countries around the world and we don't fully appreciate the damage that can come from it decades after those things are said. Um, and <clears throat> I also simultaneously realised that um, there were all these people in my community who had very nuanced, sophisticated, humble thoughts about what happened in Sri Lanka that weren't about a divided community and they were sitting in the grey and they were the majority. Then I felt, and it was a very optimistic time for me listening to all these people because I was like, I feel like that's actually the majority of the people in the world. But, but they can't be the loudest because you can't reduce those thoughts to a soundbite and you can't um, get out there and, 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 and just like make that thought obviously politically powerful because it's complex and involves often um, many truths sitting side by side and having to deal with the fact that that's what humanity is. There's no easy answers. But luckily, I think, well, not luckily, that the reason I love storytelling is because I think it's one of the few forces in the world that can grapple with that. And we can really pull together all of those um, many different truths and have them side by side and let audiences sit in that. And um, it's a long answer to saying that's why I think it can make help people belong without having to fit in because everyone's version of belonging can sit side by side and it forces you to wrestle with the, the harsh truth that unless you have a type of belonging which makes space for other people to also belong, then it's not really a belonging. Um, it's something that stops someone else from belonging, in which case it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of, of um, taking power that takes from someone else. And so how to both construct a story in a space in which therefore then many people can sit side by side um, and there's a line in the play which, which you know, echoes my thoughts, which is, um, when, um, which is that it's more important to listen than to be right. <laughs> and so how to have that kind of feeling in a group um, and construct a story that's based around that um, became my mission. And County and Cracking does that. Um, the, I was sitting in a um, – my, my mum was very against me doing this play initially and um, was telling me it was a stupid idea. And I went to Sri Lanka against her wishes and I hadn't, hadn't been back in a very long time. And um, I still have family there. And um, an uncle in my family gave me a shoebox with, and he told me it was filled with my great-grandfather's letters. And um, uh, I, we read them to each other, uh, which was lovely because it's always nice as a man to engage in intimate acts with another man because it very rarely happens <laughs> in this world we live in. And we just sat there reading my great-grandfather's letters to each other. It was this wonderfully intimate conversation we had with the, the ghost of our shared ancestor. And um, I learned that he was born a farmer um, and went to English boarding school and um, uh, an English language boarding school, sorry, and then went to Oxford where he was a, a – and a, uh, an incredible mathematician and came back to Sri Lanka and became a politician and joined the first post-independence cabinet of Sri Lanka. And he was the only table in that cabinet, the rest were Sinhalese Sri Lankans. And he was a real champion for equality and unification. And um, he um, uh, pushed that as hard as he could and, and tragically, of course, couldn't make that the, the dominant narrative of Sri Lanka. And by the end of his life, on his deathbed, civil war was breaking out and um, he'd become a real political realist and thought that Tamil people had to defend themselves and they could no longer depend on the government for support. And the arc of his life seemed to be the arc of my homeland and it was a secret that had been hidden from me that I'd found out and I realised that if I could tell my family's story, I could also tell a country's story at the same time um, and that's kind of when it all clicked together for me that we could, um, could all these big ideas about many different people belonging in one space and a, and a, and a play that could wrap, um, 
the, 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 the quiet voices in my community together could all just be told through one family story. Um, and then we told that story and it, um, it was amazing in the sense that Sinhalese and Tamil and Berger and Muslim and Hindu and Christian people from my community came to it. And I don't think some of them agreed with everything in it, but no one walked out <laughs> um, <laughs> and they sat and listened to the whole thing. And over the course of developing the play, I realized that the reason my mother didn't want to talk about Sri Lanka was because leaving Sri Lanka was an incredibly traumatic process for her. And it was the country, the violence in that country broke her heart because she loved that country and seeing a, a thing or a place you love um, fall apart um, uh, destroys um, the, the belief you had in what it could be. And she dealt with that pain by burying it and um, me wanting to find out about that meant that she had to confront that pain again. And the play ended up being a very safe way for her to do that. And it, it, it helped her reconcile her relationship with the homeland. And now she's really opened up about it. And I, I'm not sure we have many other kinds of tools other than stories that can do that, that can, can really have that kind of healing process. And the story has now healed hundreds of people from our community here and around the world in that way. And it, it's a, over the course, it's an epic show. It goes for three and a half hours, but over the course of those three and a half hours, I think the Sri Lankans are able to meet the buried trauma of their past in a way that they feel safe doing so. And, um, and that renewed vulnerability that comes from that allows us to start a process of healing and reconciliation. Um, and whilst that was happening every night, I would talk to Sri Lankans after the show and they'd always be, um, wondering why other people liked it. <laughs> um, and we'd get these standing ovations. It was really embraced by Australians more widely. And, um, they simultaneously while their own kind of act of belonging was happening in terms of the diverse Sri Lankan community, they were bemused at why everyone else embraced that story. And what I realized was happening was, um, and I'd be intrigued if you two do this as well, but I know lots of migrants do this. Um, we have a version of our actual lives that we wage in, in private um, where we're our full selves. And then in public, we have a performed version of ourselves where because we're living inside a society where we're a minority, we, we, everyone has a spectrum of this, but we essentially assimilate a little bit or a lot. And um, canning cracking was an airing of all of our ugliest parts and our most beautiful parts and everything <laughs> without any of that performance. It was saying, here is who we are in public um, as we really are. These are our most dearly held truths. Um, and, well, you know, you decide what to do with them. And that um, I didn't realize we were doing that. It wasn't until after the show that I realized we were doing that. And I think the reason the other Sri Lankans and me were also curious about how other people embraced the show is because we would, we were, that was an act of public belonging to Australian society. And um, it was such a beautiful, deep way to do it because we were finally saying, no, this is who we are, all of us. And we were dissolving the boundaries between what you usually wage as your deeper life in private and, and showing it in public. Um, and public vulnerability, I realized, is what actually real belonging is. Um, and it's terrifying. <laughs> um, I feel teary even just hearing you say that, right? Like that's powerful. That's because um, it's terrifying. It I is, guess. yeah. And um, it changed. I feel like it changed my DNA. You know, I, I don't know how else to describe how deep the change was because since then I no longer desire um, to not be vulnerable. And I hate it. You know, I, I hate to how fragile, fragile is not the right word at all. Cause it's actually very powerful. I hate how, um, uh, unarmored it is. I can't remember. I can't think of what the opposite of armor is. Um, and, um, I, I hate how unarmored it is. And, um, cause you have to put away, once you realize it's powerful, you have to then go, well, I don't want to return to those days where I 
performed every day in society. So I'm not going to do that anymore because it's a lesser version of myself. But goodness me, it's interesting being like this all the time. <laughs> um, and that long-term consistent vulnerability is, I think, um, where I'm at now and, and trying to figure out how to just be like that every day and breathe through it and, and, and keep telling more stories that can encourage people to safely be like that. Um, and yeah, that's where I feel like that longer belonging can happen. I just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions-focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. That is absolutely beautiful, Shakti. Thank you for just going there. Um, I think one of the things, you know, coming from the U.S. and Australia is the um, the second country that I've lived in out, outside of the U.S. And um, the other one was France where I, you know, had to learn the language and it was a different experience of um, trying to be part of that culture from all of the other privileges that I had. But when you talk about division, when you talk about polarization, when you talk about your heart breaking for what you thought your country could be, my own little slice of that, that resonates for me. And, um, that it does. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, no one feels sorry for you if you're American because Americans are like, you know, the assholes of the world often and, <laughs> no, no, or, you know, it's, it's punching up or whatever, <laughs> but, um, thank you. Thank you. I'm not, you know, it's not, not a pity plea, but oh, the world you needs know, a good America. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. Um, and I, I guess I'm also thinking about this kind of twin flames of, of pain and healing. And I think, you know, we're so often afraid of the pain. We're afraid that if we do the deep listening and the deep truth telling that we're going to get stuck in the pain and the pain is going to divide us and the pain is going to mire us in blame and shame. And then how will we re-knit? Like, how do we come back from that? You know, and I'm thinking about the, the, the fears and the criticisms that are circulating around, you know, the Uluru statement and all kinds of things, you know, that people are just afraid to, you know, and so do we just tell a different story? Do we try to gloss over that and go, no, 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 it's all wonderful. And I think you're right that, that real immersion into a story is one of the few sacred spaces that lets us kind of go through that whole journey and come through with some healing, not just with pain, blame, and shame in the way that we do in say politics or sloganeering or. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, oh, Millie, I think you want to say something. Oh, I just wanted to add to that a question for you bouncing off Lily is like, is part of that the way that you use story also because it's a container, you know, you know that most of the time, you know, good art, good, satisfying stories, let you in kind of tumble you around and then, and let you out gently do you think that's part of its power i mean i think there's lots going on there but yeah i think um ross gibson once said to me he's a an artist and an academic um an australian artist and academic he um uh i was having a conversation with him and he once said to me that stories are one of the best technologies we have because <clears throat> the story can take um many different parts of the world and many disparate parts of information and blend them together into what seems like an understandable whole. Um, and it came out of us talking about the way a body works, like 
you know, um, I'm currently breathing right now. My neurons are doing all these things. The, the blood in my veins are doing all these things. And um, there's actually, you know, almost an infinite number of activities that are all separate things happening right now as we talk. But this vehicle of the body and, um, and the mind and the heart and the soul and everything, our consciousness translates it into um, one concrete action. Um, and I think really good stories should try to do that. <laughs> um, and the way you talked about the fear of all that potential um, negative impact confronting pain can have, Lily, I think is exactly right. It was so well put. Um, and it's, a, it's what stops us from doing those journeys because, um, to be honest, quite often it can go that way. <laughs> um, that's not a fictional fear. It's a very real fear. Um, and done badly, these processes, often with the best of intentions, the results can be catastrophic. Um, so um, the way I think about these things is, um, and I'm going to put it in the lingo of my industry, but I'm, I'm, there's, there must be universal ways of saying this. Um, but for me, community arts, um, uh, that, and I mean that as a process, um, is, is a way of recovering humanity. Like the, we live in a world which um, uh, I think in particular our economic structures and the dominance of talking about everything through them, um, and I don't discount their importance, but storytelling-wise, it has taken over too much of the narrative of how we talk about people. And we live in a world which um, constantly advertising, economics, politics, mass media, the end result of the storytelling and all of those um, mechanisms of how we talk to each other in the world is a diminishing of humanity. Like it's, we very, very rarely talk about ourselves as full humans anymore in the main way we talk about ourselves. Um, uh, they are some of the biggest industries in the world, like gargantuan amounts of money is dedicated to diminishing our humanity. Um, and we need to find ways to recover it. Like you mentioned the Uluru statement and in the political sphere, it's like a bombshell that indigenous people disagree with each other. <laughs> and it's like, if we talked about ourselves as humans, why the fuck would we not assume that people disagree with each other? Like it is not, surprising or weird um and it's because we've diminished our ability to understand each other as full humans that that's some kind of like crazy surprise um and um so i think really good storytelling is a way to recover our humanity um the um i think good processes of confronting our fears and our buried pain and the journey through that almost, um, and I, this is where I might start to sound deceitful or something, but I don't think ever need to talk about doing any of that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, we, we, we come into a process like the one we did for Canyon Cracking, really having an enormous amount of fun and joking a lot, being very silly and, um, uh, uh, knowing that, um, we have a shared purpose and the shared purpose is, um, kind of more important than what anyone thinks about anything. <laughs> um, and, uh, the shared purpose is, um, that uh, an unshakable truth that we know that finding out what we really deeply think about things and sharing that with each other is going to lead towards a positive outcome. And because the connection that that engenders between people um, becomes more um, 
it, it, it becomes the main thing of the experience. Like when, so when you go and see Canyon Cracking, on the really good nights, that show has this special feeling. I'm trying very hard not to sound like a hippie because you arrive at these things and they're special. And then the way they've been talked about in the past, um, there's such a good um, domineering, I mean, good in a bad sense. There's such a powerful domineering uh, machine in our world that tries um, to to make fun of all of this. <laughs> um, and, and it's hard to find a language to talk about in a way that, 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 that resists that machine. Um, mm. but, um, uh, on a good night for canning cracking, um, the people became very, the audience became very invested in the characters and, um, and very caught up in what might happen to them or not. And that becomes something more important than those characters. It becomes a very deep connection between audience and actors. And then suddenly you have a room full of people just insanely connected, like the entire way the room breathes together and takes every moment together is absolutely connected. Um, and regardless of the actual subject matter of the show, that's such a special experience. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, we don't have that much anymore, you know, like having 500 people kind of just totally being in the same headspace and vibing together. Um, and those things you just never forget. You just never forget that feeling. Um, and you take it with you going forward as a, an optimism about, um, about what you think is, is possible in terms of confronting your fears. Um, and so I think those are like what I was trying to do is to outline some of the reasons why storytelling can provide unique um, uh, ways through those really difficult problems confronting society because it prioritizes um, connection and openness um, uh, above um, the opinions people in a group might have. Mm. And you're you're still telling lots of stories. You're finally getting to release The Jungle and the Sea after a COVID yeah. uh, <laughs> big delay. And, you know, you're moving into film. You're, you're working in television. As you were talking about the beauty and the magic of a live audience responding, you know, and synchronicity in their breath, you know, mm. and connected to the actors and connected to each other. I was thinking, gosh, I wonder if it's going to feel almost cold moving to a medium where there's mm. edits and cuts behind a camera mm. and you don't get to see <laughs> the audience in how they respond to you. Um, so I'm curious about what is next for you and what's driving you. And, and you can take that wherever you want. And if you want to talk to us a bit more about the jungle and the sea, because that is something people can go and see, particularly if you are in Sydney, that is coming out soon near you. And we will have links to that in the show notes. Um, but, but yeah, what is motivating you going forward? What are you excited to, to try to do? The Jungle of the Sea opens in mid-November. It's on at Belvoir, um, who I did Counting Cracking with as well, and um, uh, which is a, a theatre company in Surrey Hills in Sydney. Um, and it's about, um, it's another Sri Lankan Australian story. It's a kind of companion piece to Counting and Cracking. And during the research for Counting and Cracking, um, more came up than I could fit into one show and Canning Cracking was written in honour of those who tried to stop Sri Lanka's descent into civil war um, and this show is about trying to honour those people who lived through the war and survived it and found ways to um, keep their dignity when everything else was falling apart around them. Um, I think what I found really interesting in Canyon Cracking was the, um, and, and I, I'm sure you're both doing this in your fields as well, was normally the community arts process is used um, in small-scale ways, you know, in a very localised grassroots setting um, for communities to um, tell their own stories at whatever level they are. And I'm, I, I really was fascinated in Canyon Cracking how I could use that process to create quite a mainstream product, um, and 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 you know it was um, at Sydney Festival and it's been to Edinburgh Festival. It was like um, 
one of the key shows of those festivals, you know, this little drunken Australian story um, on the global stage. And I really, um, that's what I want to keep looking at, the, the way that we might be able to take the learnings from this process that has been built through such a grassroots localised setting and see how it might um, try to tackle or contend with um, how other bigger industries in our world work. Um, and so for me, that's kind of like more mainstream theatre and film production. Um, and uh, the, that because the, I've learned from County and Cracking that um, there's real power to be gained from doing it in that setting, you know, that, that Sri Lankan community seeing that we, our story was now part of the Australian story can't happen if the play only performs to other Sri Lankans. Um, and other Australians coming to a Sri Lankan story and saying, yes, that's an Australian story and I will connect to it because we all have families or we all love or um, we all have things that have been divided um, and I will find my connection to that universal story through um, um, via a very deep dive into Sri Lanka <laughs> um, is a wonderful thing, you know, and I, I've grown up being able to connect to Hollywood stories and I like flipping that <laughs> and having people connect to universal stories through um, something specific to my community. Um, and the there's a twin goal, I think, which is to speak truth to power in terms of um, the people who should should be condemned and the forces that should be condemned in our society and we should do that unashamedly um and so wishing for then cutting cracking that was the politics of division those who waged it and in jungle in the sea um <clears throat> that is um the forces in sri lanka that continue to not allow um the the past of that country to be properly accounted for um, and there's, there's been a real effort to squash any truth being told <clears throat> about what happened in the final stages of the war there. Um, and the, the about a hundred thousand people, um, probably much more have gone, have gone missing and nothing, no, no information has been given about what has happened to those people or where they are. The previous president of Sri Lanka came out in a press conference in 2019 and said that they were all dead quite glibly. Um, and the, um, but no other information is being given. And, um, so, um, speaking truth to that power and being able to say that, um, um, this did happen and we need to find out, um, um, what the fate of those people has been, but then critically, like are we were talking about this whole podcast, um, carrying that at the same time through a process which is not about being didactic or um, um, saying this is what's wrong with the world, but carrying that through a process where people come together and um, share their most um, dearly held truths about um, about living through that and experiencing that and still living through that and putting that all on the stage in a way that allows uh, my community to come around that um, in, in a way that um, we can grapple with um, the pain of, what people went through at that time in a way that still gives us hope. Um, and what I found in the conversations of, of, of people who live through the war is that the human humanity has this incredible ability to, to find love um, and in all of the darkest places. Um, and um, the way media talks about a war is um, that a war's on and, you know, people are fighting and that's the sum total of the experience of, of that country at that time. Um, but actually war is one of many things that are happening in a life when war's on, um, and the rest of life carries on, <laughs> um, and people still fall in love and children still annoy their parents. And, um, you still have philosophical discussions about whether God exists or not. And so, you know, I really wanted to show that in this show that there's like the fullness of life and an upholding of dignity, even while bombs are falling or, um, you're having to walk from one end of Sri Lanka to the other. Um, and, um, I think, um, 
there's the kind of the joy of life maintains um and uh the the it's a really interesting journey because with counting cracking i had to convince a lot of sri lankans had not been to the theater before didn't care about it and they were like i don't understand what you're doing shakti like i don't you're talking to me about a play and i have no clue what you're on about nor why i should be involved but because counting cracking went so well now they're really keen <laughs> um to, to immediately come to the next show and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm scared, but I don't, the journey we're going to go on with Jungle in the Sea is not one that was possible first up. Um, it, it, wouldn't, it was too much to do as the first show. Um, and so I'm really excited that um, um, we're taking the next step in our community's healing. Um, and so it's, you know, there's a, it's like a multi-stage process in what my community can go through. And this second show is the next step. Um, and, um, I haven't had canning cracking took 10 years to get up to, to convince the Australian theater industry that it was worthwhile to cast it, um, to do the marketing correctly to different audiences. And, and now we have that system in place. Like the cast is mostly from canning and cracking. I didn't have to convince anyone to do the story. And so there's a, there's a slow, um, <laughs> erosion of the power structures that have stopped all these kinds of stories being told in the past and a belief that we can keep telling them. So that's like another step forward for me too, where I can see that um, what was holding this all back previously is now um, those, those structural barriers are starting to dissipate. So I'm hoping that each project going forward can keep both doing that within my community in terms of the journey of healing, but more widely um, um, the usual barriers to a broadening of power, keep being eroded with each step until hopefully this all becomes normal. As, as we're, I know we're running out of time, but that's because I, I ramble and talk for too long. No, no, <laughs> Please edit all the boring bits out. <laughs> no, I wanted to say thank you because one of the questions I had at the beginning for you was, you know, you move sort of from an activist space to being an artist, and you know. And I was going to ask, you know, how does that translate and do you see art as an extension of your activism? But from everything that you've been saying, I actually think there's a kind of more powerful lesson, which is the flip side of what would it look like to take what you're talking about, not just the creative process, but the community engagement process. I mean, we see it a little bit, we see it in parts of activism in amazing ways, but instead of saying, oh, I moved from activism to art to express myself, you know, what if we took art as a thing to inform mm. uh, activism? I think it's just you've really made me think and feel about that. So thank you. I don't know if you want to add anything. Yeah. I want to jump in there too because that's been one of my challenges as someone, um, as someone who has been a communications professional in this world of kind of campaigning activism and politics is that we know the importance of story and we try to use story, but often it comes across as either a bit didactic and, you know, if we insert emotion, it can feel a bit manipulative. If we don't insert emotion, it can feel a bit boring and bossy and preachy. And it's really hard to do it well. It's so like hard. what you are doing, the craft that you are doing um, to bring people in, to tell a, a particular story in a universal way, to explore nuance, to to not just have to have it all reduced to a soundbite and to make art that is universal and has a moral but isn't moralizing, mm, I mm, think is yeah, one well of the said. hardest things we can do. And I was wondering if you had any advice for people trying to do that better, people trying to help people to connect to their heart in this kind of scary world at uncertain times in the work that they're doing. I think um, I've had to, um, yes, I've got some things that I've learned that, that because um, my colleagues have asked me, um, other writers, I mean, and so on. Um, I think the more specific you are, the more universal you can be. Um, and you, you want to reach through to universality through a ridiculous amount of specificity. <laughs> Um, which comes back to the reason we don't do that, I think, is because we're afraid of being vulnerable. Um, act like privilege, even if you don't have it. Act like you're privileged. I, and what I mean by that is not the political version of privilege. I mean like um, 
when I worked with Belvoir and I, I've seen how the mainstream industry works, um, you know, I'd, I'd watch um, the director of the show, Eamon, you know, when someone asks him something he doesn't know, um, he says, I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that, <laughs> which is something no person in a minority ever says. They always go, yeah, I've got the answer to that. I'll make it up right now. It's going to be whatever I think you want to know the most. Um, and this holding of power, not being afraid with um, what you're not aware of, like I think it's very powerful for us to watch how the privileged work and use their tools and techniques in our own settings um, in the sense of holding on to our own power and not and not being ashamed of it and to 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 assume that we have the privilege and the worthiness to act like our full selves is another lesson I've learned. Um, this one's going to be controversial and like I, I always start fights with um, my more left-leaning friends about this. <laughs> but um, I'll put it out there because I think it's important. <laughs> I think there's a big difference between speaking up about what justice you want to happen versus thinking about the pathway to that justice and speaking about that instead. Quite often speaking up about injustice um, is a way to create a pathway towards more of that injustice occurring. It hardens people, particularly those who are not sympathetic to your point of view, and it creates more polarised communities. And some of the more difficult work we have to do is thinking about the pathway towards justice. And that pathway often involves not only the deep listening we've been talking about, but thinking about what kinds of communication and storytelling needs to be done to allow people on their own terms to start to shed some of their assumptions and confront their own fears and through that start to change. And I don't think we do enough of that work. Shakti, thank you so much. I cannot think of a more profound note to reluctantly wrap this conversation on. <laughs> thank you for asking is- such <laughs> deep questions. Like they're really... Um, uh, it's really nice to be part of a conversation where, uh, we feels like we have a shared broader purpose and you understand the heart of what we're all doing. And, um, it's really nice to know that these resonances exist between, um, the act of making change and the act of storytelling, um, and a very humanist, um, version of activism, which is about what people do with each other rather than getting on a high horse. And um, yeah, it was really nice to sit in that space. Mm, Thank you for being here. Everyone, the links are in your show notes. Um, The new play, The Jungle and the Sea is opening soon in Sydney and we can only hope we'll tour. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We'll try. Yeah, bring it to (laughs) Hobart. Shakti, thank you so much for being here with us today. It has been Total pleasure. Thank you. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. Celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org.
And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.